Welcome birders, this is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. Shortly after I finished recording this episode of the Bird Banter Podcast with my guest Nick Lund, I checked my email and I had an alerts notice, I get hourly alerts for birds seen in Washington uh, that I do not have on my Washington State list. And there, are, I'm at a point now where there aren't a whole lot of birds seen in Washington each year that I haven't seen yet in the state of Washington. Well, one of the birds I've been hoping to get in the state for many years is little gull. Little gull is a very small gull, looks a lot like a Bonaparte's gull, tends to associate with Bonaparte's gulls, and we get a lot of Bonaparte's gulls in our area in the fall, right around this time of year. And it hasn't been seen many times. Years ago, there was a little gull at American Lake, a lake uh, in, in Tacoma. And it came for two or three years in a row. And a lot of birders got their life little gull at American Lake. I don't know how many trips I made to American Lake looking for that little gull and never was able to locate it. Uh, and then uh, for the next uh, 15 or 20 years, it was either not seen or rarely seen in the state. There was one scene uh, just a few years ago at Point No Point in Washington. Washington, but I didn't get to chase that one. And then I got this email that a little gull had been seen. So I got right on the phone and talked to my birding buddy, Ken Brown, who's a Kitsap County birder I knew would be all over this little gull. And sure enough, he was at the little gull site at point no point looking for the little gull. But he'd been there a while and it hadn't been relocated after he got there. And he thought uh, that he probably wasn't going to get it on that Friday and that he was going to go back on Saturday. So I arranged to Meet up with him early Saturday morning and chase this little gull, hoping I could get it. Well, I get a call back 15 minutes later that, sure enough, the little gull showed back up right close to shore, and Ken got a great look at it. But being the super birding buddy that Ken is, he agreed to go again the next morning out to Point No Point with me and help me try to find this little gull. So I met Ken at 6 in the morning at his house, and we raced out to Point No Point, had a little stop for owling on the way because out here before daylight savings times come ends, uh, still dark at 7.30 when we got there. Uh, but uh, we got there about 7.30, and the light was just clearing. It was a little bit foggy, and the big flock of Bonaparte skulls that had been seen there the day before was nowhere to be found. There were a handful of bonies around, but not many. And we looked, and we looked, and we looked, and other birders started to trickle in within an hour or so. And so that by 10 o'clock or so, there were probably 20 birders. So this is a good bird for Washington, a hard-to-find bird. There was a, a flock of about 20 birders, uh, socially distanced, wearing masks, all with scopes trained on the uh, the gull flocks off the off the point. And sure enough, Brad Wagner, who had found the the little gull though the day before, and was my guest on the Burbana podcast episode number 34, uh, Brad uh, showed up. Uh, you know, knowing the point, knowing the tides, he knew when the ball was likely to show up. So he showed up at about the right time. And sure enough, shortly after Brad got there, Grace Oliver, who's uh, the treasurer of Was, I know her from there, uh, shouted out that she had seen the little gull fly into the flock and light on the water. And so we all start looking for a gull on the water. Well, little gull looks very very much like Bonaparte's gull on the water. It's a small gull, pretty much the same general shape, has a little bit smaller bill, but that's really not very noticeable, has a little black on the head in its winter plumage uh, that Bonaparte's gulls don't. Bonaparte's gulls have a little grayish black patch on the cheek, as does a little gull. Little gull has a little black on the cap, and I was looking for a gull with black on the cap. And Sure enough, one of the birders shouts out that, I'm on a gull with white wingtips. I think that might be it. And I'm thinking, 
white wingtips. I hadn't really thought about that, but if you look through a flock of Bonaparte's gulls, looking for one that doesn't have black wingtips is a heck of a lot easier than looking for one that has a tiny little bit of black on the top of the head as it bobs up and down in the waves. So I scanned across the flock, and sure enough, I come to a gull with white wingtips. It looks like a Bonaparte's gull, and I get it focused in on the scope, and sure enough, it has a little black on the cap, and I'm pretty sure I've got the little gull. I stay on it, uh, pass off my scope to a friend, Paul, who got a look at it, come back, the bird had drifted, I relocated, and just stuck with that bird for maybe a minute or two, and then it took flight. And the real major identifying mark of little gull, and this was an adult little gull, of an adult little gull is it had jet black underwing linings, uh, whereas Bonaparte gulls are all white under the wing. So it's very different when you get a look at the underwing. And when a gull takes flight, it first lifts its wings up to take that first flap, and bang, this black just glares at us, and we all shout out, got it and follow this little gull flying around the flock of Bonaparte's gulls for a few minutes and got a great look. It was not a photogenic uh, type opportunity. This bird was flying around in a flock 100, 150 yards or more offshore and it, I didn't even try to get a picture. Uh, but uh, did get a great look and got my Washington State first little gull. Interestingly, my first little gull, my lifer little gull, was when I was in Maine birding. It was in July, and there were three little gulls who were hanging out around the mouth of a river in southern Maine. And I went down with a group from the Oakland area. Louis Bevier led a group down, and I went with him, and we saw three adult breeding plumage little gulls right on the, the little, I think it was the mouth of the little river. I'm not sure about that, but it was uh, the mouth of a river in southern Maine and got my life for a little gull, which was really cool. Uh, but getting one in Washington was, for me, even more cool because they're just really hard to find out here. So I was really happy about that. Well, that leads nicely into my introduction to my guest this episode. Nick Lund is a Maine birder. If you've been listening for a while, you probably know that I grew up in Maine. Although I was born in Seattle, I moved to Maine when my dad got out of the Air Force. I was just a few months old and spent my whole childhood, my whole youth, in Oakland, Maine. Little town near Waterville, Colby College, central Maine area, and spent my summers at McGraw Pond. I can remember, although I wasn't a birder as a kid, can remember rough grouse flushing as I'd walk through the woods, and can remember uh, whippoorwills singing in the evenings in the, in the early summer. Uh, so I remember loons yodeling on the lake. Really cool stuff, although none of them are on my life list. I got all of those birds later. Well, my guest today is Nick Lund. Nick is the birdist. He has a website, thebirdist.com, and goes by the moniker The Birdist, and is quite uh, popular on the birding circuit. He's on Nate Swick's uh, ABA podcast from time to time, and has quite a story to tell. I really enjoyed talking with him today. It was especially fun to talk to another Maine birder. So I learned some things, places to go when I go back and visit, and I'm really excited to have as my guest today on the Bird Banner podcast, The Birdist, Nick Lund. Nick, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for being on with me today. Thanks for having me, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, fellow Mainer. Uh, did you grow up in Maine or did you move to Maine later? Born and raised. Uh, I grew up in uh, Falmouth, Maine and uh, went to high school here. Uh, left uh, for high school and lived in a number of places, Colorado and Washington, D.C. and Mississippi for a bit. And then came back and I'm here, I think, for the long haul, but, but who knows? 
yeah. The the long haul these days is uh, as jobs go, as you never know. But <laughs> yeah, good for you. Well, I, I grew up in Maine too. I grew up in Oakland, Maine, a little town up near Waterville near Colby College. Sure. Uh, and grew up there. I didn't bird as a kid. Was a kind of a fisher and hunter and all those sorts of things and a athlete and went to Bowdoin College and, mm -hmm. uh, and and didn't bird that whole time. I just was such a one of the things I. Uh, wish I had done because Bowdoin was a great place to be a birder. I, they had terrific birding faculty there and that sort of thing. But anyway, uh, so you're in Maine now and you work for Maine Audubon, I think. I do. But but on that point, though, isn't it funny how, how you regret the times before you were a birder? You feel like you were just wasting your life. When I was in college, I studied abroad. So I didn't start birding until my senior year of college. Oh. Um, which, which was, I, I think, interesting for a number of reasons well, one of which I, I, so I never took any science classes, you know, most, most young birders grow up and become scientists or take biology right. classes. I, I never, you know, I was still a young birder, but I had no background in, in the sort of science of birds or ornithology oh. or anything like that. Um, but I also, I studied abroad my junior year in South Africa. Uh, oh. And so I, I was living there for five months and traveling all over to the coasts and to uh, different safari. And I, and I, the birds that I must have just driven by and walked by and not even glanced at, I just, I kick myself every day. I wake up in a cold sweat sometimes um, <laughs> about, uh, you know, I remember I, I went, um, I did, I went shark diving. So there are these, oh, wow. um, there's these, it's sort of a famous thing to do down there. You go out uh, where all the great white sharks are and you get in a cage and, and that was cool. But you know, there were probably 50 species of, uh, you know, shearwater and albatross and things around yeah. me that I didn't even glance at, you know, what a, mm -hmm. what a dummy, but, uh, yeah. the cost to go back is prohibitive. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And I was there for so long. Um, so it's, it's funny. We share, we share that a little bit where, um, you know, you, you just, you rue the, the, the birds that you missed back then. Yeah, I uh, I started birding when I was thirty after after hmm. school and residency, and I moved back to New York. And my wife was a birder, and I didn't even know it. Married someone hmm. birder, and she, you know, she was kind of an on again, off again birder. She'd bird here and then back quit for a year or so, and then get into it for a while. And then anyway, we were in the we were at, uh, traveling to visit my folks in Florida. Went down to the Everglades. Yeah. And uh, and, and actually we we're traveling back from Key West. I was in Key West, wasn't birding in Key West, we're driving back. We had a day, extra day. So we, she convinced me to stop at the Everglades. I said, why do you want to go to the Everglades? We've seen all these alligators, you know? And she says, well, I, well I'm a bird watcher. I said, you're what? She <laughs> says, yeah, I'm a bird watcher. She says, I've got my binos with me. Right. I always wanted to see this and that. Went in. I was hooked in one day. Oh, wow. Me. Cool. It was, it was, it was great. Uh, but anyway, uh, same sort of thing. It really opens your eyes, you know, you, you, you're open, it opens your eyes to the natural world. And it sounds like it opens your eyes to your spouse a little bit too, which is helpful yeah. in a lot of ways. Kind of fun. Uh, so I, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about birding in Maine. I grew up in Maine, of course, and, and go back every summer. Uh, and uh, I, you know, just checked your eBird list. Obviously you've gotten around the state a bit and you got a mm -hmm. Maine list. How long have you been in Maine now back in Maine? So I, w I went to law school in Portland. So I was here for three years um, before I moved away again. So I went away to college, lived in Colorado, then came back for law school and then left again. So I was here for three years, then uh, birding. And then uh, I guess I just been back for the two years since then. So really only oh. five years of birding in Maine, okay. Uh, okay. you know, with assorted, you know, visits home. Uh, sure 
when I when I could. Um, so you know, not that long in the scheme of things, but you know, I I do. I really love I really love the traveling aspect of birding. I love the adventure aspect of birding, and so I do try to get around as much as possible. It is great. I have to say, you know, one thing I love about birding is, you know, before I became a birder, I go to the coast, you know, go to the beach with my family. And yep. I hated the beach. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, lying on the sand in the hot sun right. and just trying to read and the sun's in your eyes. I just didn't like the beach at all. Right. And then I became a birder says, sure, we can go to the beach. And Let's do it. Lawn, set them up in their lawn chairs and I'd get my bins and go for a walk. There you great. go. So, yeah, or the cities or travel to any place. You know, there's no place you can go that uh, you can't find some new birds. Well, well, that's the beauty of it, right? Really. Um, I, you know, I think a lot about rock climbers, you know, people who love to go climbing rocks and, you know, what do you do Monday through Friday? You know, if you're sitting in an office there, you can't, you're just thinking about rock climbing and you're just not doing it. But birding is not like that at all. It's just a, it's something that it's a layer that just um, you know, f- lays like a blanket over your life that you're constantly doing it. Every window you look out of, every you know, chip note you hear through a window. Uh, it, it's I-, I love it because there is no there is no off time. You know, any season, any place you are. I, there, as far as I know, there's there's nothing else like that. Yeah, it's, it's got to be unique in that regard. This just made me laugh. I'm, I live in a condominium in Tacoma, and I've got a really nice view of Commencement Bay. And I'm kind of in a little quiet room, but I'm looking through two sets of windows right now. Right. And a pair of brown pelicans flying There you go. In front of, front of the, and brown pelicans are really hard birds in the inner Puget Sound. Right. There's, there's been a pair of young, two young pelicans uh marauding around and I got them on my house list just a few days ago and they just made three or four loops around the front. Window. That's so funny. I didn't realize they made it up that far. That's great. Well, they don't. Uh, I mean, you know, not every year. Some years they uh, do. They they breed down south and they come out of a post-breeding dispersal. I got gotcha. you. Up to the Washington coast. And so you can get hundreds of them at Westport. Uh, huh. But to get one, you know, to get from Westport to here, they've got to fly up the coast and down the straight away right. and all in through the sound and dodge a few islands and get down to Tacoma. So it's a, it, they're, they're off the beaten track here. Well, you know, Washington state is, a, is another place that I have visited fairly extensively, but before I was a birder and not been there oh. since I was a birder, you know, I, I uh, stayed a few days on Orcas Island and I drove from Seattle um, all the way across the state um, into Idaho and, uh, and, you know, I'm sure passed incredible things and probably was near Cassia Crossbills, Cassia Crossbills when I was in Idaho, but I wasn't a birder yet. So I didn't, didn't think to think about it. Well, they probably weren't Cassia Crossbills yet then. <laughs> they were, we just didn't know it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Great. Uh, so Nick, tell me what you do for the Audubon. I know you work for Maine Audubon. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, they are, Maine Audubon, it's like some of the New England and East Coast Audubons, I think is not part of National Audubon. Correct. It's, it's one of those uh, odd, uh, I don't know. Independent chapters, right. Yeah, Maine Audubon, uh, there's no society, we're just Maine Audubon. And, okay. And right, we... Um, you know, we've been around in one form or another for a very long time. The, the organization actually got its start in 1843 as the Portland Society for Natural History um, and then merged with what was then the main Audubon Society in the 70s. And so we've always, uh, well, since then, we've been completely independent. You know, we obviously share a lot in common with the National Audubon Society uh, in a lot of our goals. And, you know, we are an environmental organization, but we have a little broader of a, of a focus than they do. 
Um, you know, we work to protect all wildlife and wildlife habitat in Maine uh, because they really are connected. And so, you know, we do programs with uh, fish and birds, of course, but lots of habitat restoration, habitat protection, and a lot of issues that benefit birds uh, and all kinds of species. And so, you know, it's essentially the same idea. We're a nonprofit environmental organization. We have lots of education. So we teach thousands of you know, school kids and adults in Maine. Uh, we have a bunch of scientists on staff who are, you know, uh, conducting long-term programs to monitor the health of various species uh, around the state. And then we have advocates. So we, we uh, bring what we've learned from science to Augusta, our capital, to uh, try to tell them what to do, what to do right. So we're, we're a really great organization. Um, and I'm, I'm what's called the outreach and network manager. I sort of have a, I'm a bit of a Swiss army knife, I think here. I come from a background working in environmental advocacy. Mm-hmm. I worked for a number of years for a group called the National Parks Conservation Association in Washington, D.C. as a energy policy guy. So trying to protect national parks, mostly from oil and gas development. And so I've taken some of that background here uh, and work on policy issues like bird glass collisions and uh, solar development, things like that, Uh, but also do a lot of just great outreach. So I try to travel around the state or these days uh, virtually travel around the state just to talk to different Mainers about Maine Audubon and the work we do and the great stuff in Maine and do whatever they ask me to do. It's been really great to uh, to come home and, and work for this awesome organization that you know gives me a job in the birding, really. Yeah, it's hard hard to beat when you you can have a nice uh, nice marriage between your passion for non work sort of stuff and your work to boot. So uh, I uh, I envy a little bit uh, birders <laughs> who can work in a in the in you know mesh their work and their birding so seamlessly. Well, you're you're tired, right? Is that right? I am retired. That's the best. yeah. So I envy you. Are you kidding me? I like. I still have to. I still have to work all day. You're. Uh, yeah, I, you know. I don't get to bird as much as I want to. No, I am retired, and I have to say, this COVID has put a big kink in my plans. Mm. Yeah. Oh, poor, poor me. First. World Sorry. Uh, anyway, yeah. I my daughter lives in Costa Rica. Wow. I had. A, I'm a Rotarian in the Rotary Club. Uh-huh. And I had a Rotary Friendship Exchange. It's a it's a, this cool program. We just go visit another country and visit five different Rotary clubs for three days each, and and just see how people live and meet people. The the theory for Rotary's theory behind it is that you know it, it's hard to have wars with and hate people that you're friends with. Sure, uh, it's not a bad you know, not a bad uh, philosophy. Sure. But anyway, uh, I I was gonna spend a week or two in uh, Costa Rica and then go on to Peru. And I had five days of, with a guide all set up there before mm. friendship exchange and then come back and that uh, didn't happen. I'm so sorry. It's uh, it, it'll be there when this is all over and they'll, they'll, they'll welcome you with open arms. I'm sure we, I actually, we, um, some friends and I went to Ecuador in early March and, Whoa. you know, as it, as the days were leading up, back. we sort of, yeah weren't sure. And the day we got back, March 11th was basically shutdown day. Wow. Um, I don't know what would have happened had we been a couple you know, days later than that, but we just snuck it in under the wire. I have a friend who got stuck in, in Lima for about a month trying to get home. No way. Wow. Had to, had to go through the embassy and get a special flight arranged. It was uh, a big hassle for sure. And she was a little worried about it. Yeah, we were sort of secretly looking forward to to it, you know. Oh, uh, another another few weeks stuck in Ecuador. Sorry, family. I oh, I'd love to, but this whole government prevention thing. What are you going to do? Yeah, 
So you have gotten to go on some cool birding trips. I have to say, one of my favorite podcasts, the ABA podcast, was the episode that you did with, I'm not sure if you did the episode with Nate Swick or he just talked about you in the episode. Uh, I recorded some parts for it. We we did sort of a, uh, we recorded parts on our own, as I recall, and sent them in and he assembled them. Oh, so we man. weren't speaking together. Um, anyway, that is one of the, that's on my bucket list of places. I have this dream that I'm going to go visit Maine in the summer, uh, you know, June or so, and uh, take the ferry up to Newfoundland and, uh, and, and bird Newfoundland and go to the breeding bird islands for a few days and come back. It sounds too, way too much fun. Um, well, the ferry actually from Maine, the ferry, if it still runs only goes to Nova Scotia. So from there you'd have to, yeah, um, you have to run a car there. Yeah, get a car in Nova Scotia and then drive up. And I, I believe there are ferries from Nova Scotia to Newfoundland. Um, yeah. I'm not quite it's sure. Not, it's not you can drive. Yeah, there are ways to get there. I haven't obviously haven't thought the trip through as carefully. <laughs> it, well, let me tell you, it's worth it. So, you know, uh, Newfoundland is, you know, as far northeast as you can go, basically. And yeah. always a place that I had heard of as having great birds, but, you know, uh, wasn't you know, for birders, you have a long list of travel destinations. And mm-hmm. um, it, I don't know if it was a place that I was going to get to. The folks from Tourism St. John offered to take a few of us up there. And, and I was elated, you know, what an opportunity. And um, they showed us around. We we were hooked up with Jared Clark, who uh, is an incredible birder and bird guide up there, runs a company called Bird the Rock Tours. He, you know, knows that place like the back of his hand, um, knows every bird. And we just tooled around for a few days and had just the time of our lives. It is stunningly beautiful up there. Um, and, you know, in the scheme of things, we saw very little of the island. We, we stayed on what's called the Avalon Peninsula, which is mm-hmm. um, this, uh, this little sort of H-shaped peninsula that comes off the, the southeastern part of Newfoundland. And, you know, there's really no need really to travel farther than that. We saw everything we could have asked for, including things like ptarmigans and, you know, perhaps most memorably, these incredible seabird colonies. My favorite was the cliffs at Cape St. Mary's, which is a huge gannet colony and also uh, razorbills and murres and things, but gannets are, you can get the closest to them and you know, it, 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 it's the, the, maybe the highlight of my birding life. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. These huge sheer cliff faces with just thousands and thousands of different birds squawking and flying around and, and zooming up and down. And you're, and you know, it's a very, uh, this type of thing wouldn't fly in the States. I think, um, there, you know, there's no guardrails, there's no fences, there's no anything. You sort of just walk down to this cliff and you get as close as you, you dare. Um, safely do. Sure. Yeah, yeah, in uh, in it would have been probably you know lawsuited out of existence in the United States long ago, but just incredible, an absolutely incredible experience. We had a blast. St. John's is a wonderful little city, and we just had a we just had the best time. So I, I highly encourage you and and anyone to to get it on their list. It's on my list. I, I've I've been birding you know thirty five years or so, and and my yeah. For a long time, like many birders, you know, seeing new species was my, God, I want to see another species. Right. If I go there, I can see three more species or whatever. And and I still, I'm, I'm a lister, I unabashedly, but Good. Uh, I've kind of changed my 
aspirations from seeing another species to seeing the true birding spectacles. Yeah. In, in the ABA, especially. So I, I, that's, I want to go there. I want to go to gamble and see the breeding bird colonies there. Yeah. I, w- I want to go to the Platte river in March and see the Sandhill crane, you know, spectacle. Uh, you know, it's just, those are, they turn me on more now than finding a new species. Uh, you know, I completely agree. And those are the things that really stick with you in the long term. I think, you know, I've seen lots of species, but you know, it's not particularly memorable. It's sort of a tick when you, you know, see one and it flies away or whatever, yeah. you know, those experience of really being in the world of birds, seeing their behavior, seeing their, you know, their sort of evolutionary uh, progress and action. Those are the things that, you know, make this world so special, I think. And when you can, um, when you can really sit there and appreciate the fact that we're living in a world that isn't, that is occupied by more than just humans and that has plenty of species that are doing fine without humans or have lived here for so long without us that that's what really moves me in a lot of ways. And, you know, seeing those cliffs at Cape St. Mary's, um, you know, similarly seeing, I remember uh, seeing wintering flocks of snow geese in the, uh, the Chesapeake, and the coast of Delaware and really just being moved by, by the enormity of it all. And, um, and the spectacle of it, that's really what I think sticks with you longer, you know? Um, For sure. Here in Washington, we have a few, a few of our, you know, maybe not nationally great spectacles, but locally great spectacles. We have the snow geese at, at the Skagit Samish flats. You know, we have yep. 10, 20, 30,000 snow geese in a flock. That's impressive. Pretty good. Be right, right close to them. And, and then the big mixed winter flocks on the east side. I just love those. In the yeah. Over and see, you know, 5,000 horned larks and try right. to pick, the, pick out the snow buntings and pick out the Lapland longspurs from right. among them. And it's just, and they're just swirling all over in the, you know, snowed over wheat fields. It's just super cool. Yeah. <laughs> super cool. Yeah, those sorts of things uh, yeah, are something you look for, we look forward to every winter. And, and the thing about birding is that those spectacles are everywhere if you look for them. You know, every state, it's what's so great about birding is that birds are everywhere. And, uh, you know, fascinating aspects of uh, bird life or uh, different seasonal aspects of it are, are everywhere. You know, I remember I, I lived in Mississippi for a year and I, you know, wasn't sure what to expect down there. But I spent a lot of time in the Delta, which is the, the west side of Mississippi, the flat floodplains, which have, you know, thousands and thousands of, uh, similar to what you talked to, you know, huge flocks of uh, greater white-fronted geese and snow geese and Ross's geese and blackbirds and larks and just spectacles everywhere. You know, and, and, and you know, Mississippi isn't exactly famous for its birds, but you go down, down there and look around and they're everywhere and it's incredible. So, it, you know... There, there is no bad place for birding, I don't think. So there's even a reason to go to Mississippi. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I could talk about Mississippi all day. Yeah, very cool. So, Nick, uh, Nicholas, you said you didn't get into birding until your last year of college. Uh, what, yeah, how, what prompted you to get into birding, and how did your passion grow from there? Yeah, good question. I mean, I, it sounds like I maybe had a similar upbringing as you did. Um, you know, I come from a very outdoors-focused family, mostly uh, hunting and fishing. So I did a lot of hunting and fishing growing up. Um, my, you know, my family is a big sportsman family. We, uh, my grandfather and dad, uh, are the editors of a this big newspaper in Maine called the Maine Sportsman newspaper, which is, um, you know, focused on hunting and fishing and snowmobiling and things like that. That's and I and so I grew up in that world, but I never sort of loved it. 
really. Um, you know, hunting is not very exciting for me. I don't, um, you know, I, I still hunt f- uh, frequently, but it's much more about sort of drinking whiskey and hanging out with my family in the woods. Mm-hmm. You know, fishing is fun, but kind of boring. You know, we're on the same lake a lot. Um, you know, no disrespect to people who love fishing, but just never really clicked with me. Um, but I was really geared in sort of the, the outdoors mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, the moment it clicked, you know, I remember it very clearly. I, I um, was with my girlfriend at the time. We, uh, it was uh, spring break of, of my senior year of college. We had driven from our college in upstate New York down to um, the coast. We drove down to Alabama. I'm not really sure why. I guess we were just looking for something to do. We had a great time. We drove all the way down and we drove all the way back up to uh, her family's home in Indiana. She was from Indiana. And as part of that, we stopped at a used bookstore in uh, outside of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I pulled for whatever reason, a a Peterson, old Peterson off the shelf. And um, I I opened it up and I, and next to all the birds, um, someone, I, I, I took it uh, eventually, I think it was an old woman in Florida had written next to all the species, the, the date she had seen them and when, and something about that, something about that book becoming more than a a guide, but a sort of uh, a a checklist and a treasure map instantly clicked in my head. I bought that book. I crossed off all her sort of old lady handwriting (laughs) And I wrote my own sightings next to it immediately. I, I, I we stopped at a cornfield right out, right outside, and I saw a northern shoveler, which is the first bird I remember uh-huh. um, seeing. And that was it. I mean, it was in, instantly from there. It was you know zero to sixty, and um, never going back. So somehow in my brain, the sort of um, the Venn diagram of you know, natural world and you know collecting and uh, adventure. Uh, was sort of looking for something to fill that middle overlap and um, birding just dropped right in. And and that was that. That lady must have died because she would never have let go of that. (laughs) I know. Hopefully I, you know, I wish I, uh, her name was not on the book anywhere. And so hopefully um, she knows I'm keeping her legacy going. And I do, I do really appreciate her for, uh, for setting me on this path. Yeah. Funny story about bird books. My late wife, uh, she kept her, her life list in an old hardcover golden guide. Hmm. Uh, and that was her first birding book. And she, that was where she kept her list and she did the same thing. And that's how she taught me, you know, you circle the one you see, you point, you draw little arrows yep. to the specific field marks that you see, you put the county and the date, uh, that you saw it, whether it's a male or female, all little notes in the, in the side thing. Uh, and anyway, so, so we're, we're at my folks camp in Oakland, Maine. And yep. we're out. I don't remember what we're doing. We're, I think we're canoeing or boating around somehow. Uh, and uh, she's all lathered up in sunscreen and she drops her golden guy. <sighs> and it went like 12 or 15 feet down. And I could see it at the bottom of the lake. And I'm like, can I dive that? She says, and you've got to get that far. I can't lose. She was just oh, oh, man. so upset. And so I took about 10 dives to finally get to the bottom of the lake, grab that book, bring it back up. And she spent two days drying out everything. Oh, man. Um, anyway, I still have that book. It's in my bookshelf. So. That's great. It's, it's battle-worn now. Those are scars from yeah. the scars from the Those field. Are- Yes, it is. Uh, it has seen its better days, but you can still read that. It was all in pen, so you can still read the uh, the little blue. Oh, good. Ink thing. So, <laughs> you know, what? I, I think about that a lot in field guides. I think about why, um, you know, why younger people don't get into birding 
sooner. And I think a lot of it is because that the element of the sort of checklisting element of them of birding is um, is not evident to a lot of young people. You know, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of young people do love collecting. You know, you see kids mm-hmm. collecting. Oh yeah, baseball. Yeah. You know, but but people don't think connect that to co- collecting sightings of birds. And and I wonder, you know, field guides are set up to be a sort of you know some sort of sort of scientific tool where you're out in the field doing God knows what, and you see a bird and you try to identify it. Um, I, I believe that field guides would sort of benefit from a shift towards making them more accessible for listers where you, mm-hmm. you know, have spaces for notes and for, you know, recording the date and time because turning them into sort of a, a scavenger hunt um, doesn't detract, I don't think at all from the science of it and from sort of the art of having to learn identification, but it does make it more accessible as sort of a, a reason to own a, a, a book or a reason for young people to want to, or any people um, to want to sort of take this up. I've always been sort of interested in the fact that field goals guides don't, don't provide that a space for that. Some, like of we do. Have it at the, some of them have it at the end. The list yep. that you can check them off, but it's not the same as having it right by the pictures and the, and the, and the writing. You're right. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So sounds like uh, uh, you're a good writer, Nick. It sounds like <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I, uh, well, maybe we'll have something to talk about in a, in a few years on that. Yeah. Um, that is an idea I've, I've had for a long time. Um, I, I, you know, I just think if I hadn't, if I hadn't seen that woman's handwriting, I would not, ne- I wouldn't have connected those things I, and I wouldn't have done it. Um, yeah. It's not apparent, but it is such a huge part of birding that it's it's interesting to me that that uh, that it's not more explicit in the in the guides. Yeah, that is a cool cool thought. I hadn't really thought about that. That's a great thought. Uh, so you are really for someone who's been in birding what ten years, twelve years, not fifteen now. now. Yeah, two thousand five. So a while. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> you, are, you are really you are really connected uh, to the national birding community. I have to say. Hey. Uh, how, how did you, did that come from being the birdist or how did that happen? I think so. I think so. I think I just, um, you know, I, I, because I started late, I, you know, so, so I started late. So I was too old to become a scientist, right? Cause I, I didn't have time to take any sure. science classes, but I was still younger than everybody I was birding with. Uh, <laughs> and so I was in a sort of odd position you know, relative to most birders, um, where I wasn't a scientist, but I, but I was still young. Um, and, and so that I think gave me a, a perspective that's sort of unique among birders, at least when I started of, of trying to find an angle on birding that was, that, you know, had a youthful element to it, but, but wasn't scientific at all. Um, and that really was sort of looking on birding from the cultural aspect to it, I think. And, and you know, I've always been fascinated with the way that birds are represented in, in wider culture and how, you know, movies portray birds or sports teams and things like that. It's always been interesting to me where, you know, where that overlap is and, and mostly, you know, how, uh, how poorly the translation is. You know, things are misidentified or done wrong all the time. Yeah. And so the, that sort of drove a lot of my early writing. You know, I think like a lot of birders who just start out, I was just completely consumed by an interest in birds. And the only outlet, the major outlet I had for it at that time was, you know, that was when blogs were really um, were coming sure. on the scene and anybody could start one. And I, and I quickly found out the power of the sort of internet and of power of blogs where, 
you know, I, I could have a question and I could just find the email address of some expert and ask them the question. Um, I, I, I really remember um, I, was, I had an internship at a, a, a great environmental organization called the Wilderness Society. Um, and I was walking from the metro with my boss at the Wilderness Society. And we were just walking to the office. And we, were, we saw these pigeons on the ground. And we were wondering why there weren't more raptors you know, living on buildings taking advantage of these delicious pigeons. Sure. And so we just sort of talked about it. And then I got to my desk and I was just like, well, uh, let's find out. I remember emailing, I wish I could recall the name of it, but a, a, a peregrine falcon expert at, in California. And he responded. And so I, you know, I wrote about it. And it was really powerful to see, you know, just by saying I had a blog, I could get people to, to talk to me. I, that was, I did that for a long time. Um, my, my first birding blog was called Bird DC. And it was not good. Um, and, but... I, you know, I had a lot of fun, you know, working the pop culture angles and, and talking to um, experts and things. And I think, you know, some of that enthusiasm and some of that, you know, different perspective um, helped me um, get some traction with, with folks. Very cool. Uh, so you have, uh, you also have a Google Facebook group called Google Street View Facebook. What <laughs> yeah. What the heck is that? Uh, a funny name for a Facebook profile. yeah page? So you know Google Street View, right? Is yeah. you go into Google Maps and you you click the little blue line, and there are these cars that drive around or or backpacks yeah, that okay, that, okay yeah, I get that, it. That give you know three that give three sixty views of everywhere. So okay. you know it's this incredible. I remember when it was released, it was this sort of incredible human undertaking of of mapping all the streets in the world not it's not nearly in the mm-hmm. world but lots of different places yeah lots of places and you know as a birder doing what birders do i said you know maybe i can see a bird in in some of these things you know uh, lots of birds are on the sides of roads or on telephone poles near roads and so um for for a long time as part of my the birdist blog um if i had you know some downtime at work or was kicking around for a little bit i would just poke around street view and see if i could see anything and i would i would find stuff you know of course you see birds from the car all the time and and um especially when some of the street view people wear the backpacks and they're walking on beaches or whatever you can identify birds and so i you know i found you know dozens of different species um uh <laughs> And eventually I said, you know, and I would get a few, some feedback from other people who would try to do it. Um, and at one point I just said, you know, let's just open this up and, and make it a Facebook group and invite everyone in and, and, and thousands of people do it. And we found, you know, it, it, it still is unbelievable to me, but we found over 1,100 different bird species um, around the world in google street view just poking around google street view which is you know what a, a more than a tenth of all bird species in the world that, that's um, insane it's insane we found you know a bunch of hummingbird species we found you know most every uh species of waterfowl that you can find um cranes and herons and all it's it's incredible to me the, the what people have been able to find and i and it's it's so accessible to people and it it's um you know, allows you to travel to these different places and see what it's like to live in these different places and, and what the birding situation is that, um, you know, people's are, are, it's really taken off. It's, it's pretty great. I'm sorry. I'm laughing so hard. I can't talk. It's, <laughs> oh my goodness. it's still one of those things I sort of shake my head at and be like, I can't believe there are these people out there, but you know, we get people signing up every single day and we get people finding birds every single day. 
and and it is something that can continue to evolve as uh, Google Street Never View adds, yeah. Uh, yeah, adds additional uh, roads or or updates uh, the roads they have. You know, you have another chance of seeing new birds, and so uh, it's it's just pretty awesome. <laughs> It is crazy. The crazy things birders and people. Do. <laughs> oh my goodness. That is truly over the top. Yeah. Over well, the top. you, until you try it, give it a shot, go down to some places, you know, in Washington. And, and, uh, if there are, I think there are probably ferry routes, uh, in, uh, in Puget Sound. I'm going to be taking a ferry next week. Yeah. There you go. Well, you can do it on take them on street view too. And you can try to find some houses, but I'm sure we're missing some of those, um, yeah, Pacific houses you might see in there. Might be. Have to give it a shot. Yeah. Good. So I visit Maine almost every summer. I miss the summer for obvious reasons. Sure. Uh, but I visit almost every summer and I uh, have a couple of pretty good birding friends in Maine. Uh, and, uh, you know, off most of the time when we go birding, we head south and head down to Scarborough Marsh. Yep. And, uh, and the Biddeford Pool and places yep. like that. Uh, tell me if a, if a birder's going to be flying into Portland. And just has a day to go birding, uh, and and is willing to rent a car. Where 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 would you tell them to go? Yeah, yeah. If you got you know four to six hours, uh, you know, kind of a little bit of time to go birding around Portland, where should they go? Sure. And this is a Portland person who is maybe not from New England not and might from, be looking for from, some. Let's say not even from the East Coast. Not even from the East Coast. Okay. Um, so you can do no wrong. Um, there are birds everywhere around here and lots of great places to go. Depending on what the person wants to see, if you have six hours. So, well, okay. You, and you know these questions are hard because, um, it, uh, it, you know, seasonally makes differences. Yeah. Fall, spring migration. Yeah. Spring, mi spring migration. Okay, cool. Sure. So I, I will say, you know, four to six hours from Portland is probably not enough to get out and see puffins. You know, a lot of people, of course, are interested in seeing Atlanta puffins. Maine's got the only breeding colonies. Um, you generally in Maine need to get on a boat and head out uh, to see them and come back, uh, which is, you know, very easy and accessible to do. But um, four to six hours, generally not enough. It may also not be quite enough if you want to get up into the boreal habitat in Maine. So Maine... Um, a lot of our most exciting birds are in the boreal forest, which Maine, you know, Southern Maine is mostly sort of your Eastern deciduous forest. And then the second, the Northern half of Maine is uh, much of it is boreal forest. So we get a lot of um, things like uh, Canada jays and boreal chickadees and spruce grouse. And in the spring and summer, all kinds of breeding warblers, um, mm -hmm. which I tell you is much more exciting to see than, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, the, the breeding spectacles and seeing birds right. like that, seeing a lot of these Eastern migrants um, during migration is great and you can get some great numbers, but they're just moving through um, going and seeing them on their breeding grounds is really a, is really a whole different story. And people don't, I think um, focus on that quite enough. So if you had a little more time, I would say get up to Rangeley, Maine or even Carabasset, Maine or some places just north of Bangor um, mm -hmm. and look for boreal breeding warblers or other boreal breeding birds because it's um, that's a really great experience and a, a much a, a really unique way to see um, the migrants that people you know go to Cape May and places to see. Um, sure. But if you're sticking closer to the Portland area, I would uh, recommend a bunch of places. Number one is um, East Point Sanctuary in Bitterford. So this is actually a Maine Audubon sanctuary. Uh, Maine Audubon has um, 
eight, seven or eight sanctuaries scattered around the state, which are free and open to the public. People can go 24, well, not 24 hours a day, but, but um, 365 days a year. We stayed open through all the pandemic stuff. And it was really great for to see the, the usage. East Point in Bitterford Pool is a, a spectacular coastal property that we have at the very tip of Bitterford Pool, which is this um, sort of odd peninsula that sticks out in southern Maine. You go, so you're East Point, you're out there, you're way out in the ocean, basically. And so it's Mm -hmm. the best place, one of the best places in Southern Maine, at least, um, to get a lot of the the sea ducks that people are looking for, especially in the winter, where there are murres there and um, razorbills and um, uh, harlequin ducks and eiders and um, all kinds of those scoters, all kinds of birds that uh, winter down here um, and are really sort of epitomize that that rocky shoreline you're looking for. So I, I love East Point Sanctuary and I recommend going there. It's sort of underburdened in migration, frankly. Um, it's one of those places that um, it's a little bit out of the way for me personally uh, when there are a lot of good migratory spots closer. So I don't get there in migration enough, but I do really recommend it. It's got you know, really good sort of a migrant trap potential. Another one is, I would say, is Kennebunk Plains. Kennebunk Plains in southern Maine is a really sort of unique place in Maine. It's just sort of this glacially scoured grassland. And so um, you get all kinds of species there that you really don't get easily in southern Maine. So uh, upland sandpiper and um, grasshopper sparrow and uh, prairie warbler and um Lots of birds there that um, that you know aren't fi- found vesper sparrow aren't found uh, in a sort of concentrated way in areas around here. So that might be a really quick trip to see some of those um, cool birds, um, you know. But it's hard. otherwise, there's, there's there's so many. There's all kinds of beaches um, you can go to. Um, Higgins Beach is a great one. A little bit a little bit off the, the beaten track compared to some of the more uh, well traveled ones. Um, if you're looking for piping plovers, um, or some of the other plovers that are coming through, um, Pine Point, which is on the Southern part of Scarborough Marsh, um, has some great turn shows in the summer where, where there's, you can get roseate and, uh, lots of commons and lease, you know, oh man, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sad as I say this cause the summer is on its way out. Um, Here but, um, there are lots, but lots of places like that. Yeah. Do you have particular have- ones that you love in, in Southern Maine? I- I mean, you named a couple of East Point and Biddeford Pool is maybe my favorite place to go in Maine. Uh, you mentioned uh, north of Bangor, or- the Orno, is it Orno Bog? Orno Bog? But Bangor, what, what's it called? Um, yeah, there's a couple. Um, uh, yeah, right. I'm blanking on the name of the bog up there. I should know this. Um, I think it's or- Orno Bog. But anyway, I'll, I'll look it up and put it in the podcast notes. So okay. I love, I love that place. The mosquitoes can be awful, but I, I love yeah. that place. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, and, uh, but I have to say, I have not been to Kennebuck Plains and that next oh. in Maine, that is going to make it because those several of those species will be main birds for me. So uh, there you uh, go. That is uh, going to be my uh, instead of just going back to the Biddeford uh, Scarborough Marsh again. Uh, I'm going to go there. Instead. Well, and it's not far from from Biddeford. It's sort of on the yeah, it's inland yeah. a little bit. But, you know, I should say, too, if you need any more uh, enticement, it's the it's the spot where Maine's only Kirtland's warbler was found. So, oh, wow. um, well, I'm sure I'd find that then. Yeah. <laughs> Only <laughs> one ever, but it was, that's, that's where it was. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so 
checked out your eBird list and uh, and I checked out your blog and you went to Hawaii on your honeymoon. Yeah. And you have a pretty doggone good list of birds from Hawaii. How did you manage that on your honeymoon? Oh, I man. Well, the way I manage it is that there's no bad place to go in Hawaii, right? You know, of course, so my, my spouse uh, is not a birder. Um, she, she likes to go to beautiful places and likes to be outside and do things. Um, and so that part is, is, makes it easy, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's less thrilled about go, going to sit at a grouse lek or something at, at two in the morning. Um, but Hawaii, you know, uh, it's, it's, there's no bad place to be. So, um, we, uh, went to the big Island and then Kauai and, it's just absolutely incredible. Um, you, you know, the, the, the um, biodiversity in Hawaii now is extremely interesting where the vast majority of it is non-native now. You know, it's, it's right. such an inviting place that, that any species that gets there um, f- from humans, you know, takes hold really easily. Um, and so a, a lot of the lower elevation birds are non-native, uh, which is still exciting to see because you see all these, you know, bulbuls and, um, you know, weird red crested cardinals and things um, yeah. in one place. And so you, I, I got tons of, you know, new birds from all over the world there, but, um, but few of them are, are endemic to Hawaii. Um, when you do, you have to make sort of special arrangements to get up into some of the native um, Hawaii uh, f- uh, the fragment forests that are left. Mm-hmm. I yeah. highly recommend doing that. We went to, uh, we re- uh, uh, worked with a, a guy named Jack Jeffries, a great guy uh, who got us into the Hakalau uh, forest uh, on, on the slopes of the mountains there, which is this beautifully preserved um, remnant forest with uh, the attendant endemic birds, um, honey creepers and things. And it was just the most beautiful place I've ever been. And, you know, it's so amazing there. So, you know, Hawaii is such an inviting place that all these um, plants that made their way naturally there long ago um, sort of dropped all the defenses that they needed to survive on the mainland. Right. And so you have all these thorn bushes that have no thorns and you have, you know, there's no biting insects and uh, it's such, such a, just such a pleasant place. And we saw a lot of those great birds. And then, and then in Kauai, um, I traveled a little bit on my own. We went to the Koki State Park up there in the, the highlands of Kauai um, and okay. um, tried for some of the native birds. I saw a couple, missed a couple. Um, but uh, just, it's so incredibly beautiful. And even for a non-birding, um, non-birder spouse, you know, there's no objections to traveling around to any of the places to see the birds. So They are spectacular. Very cool. Have you been out there? I have. I went. I've been to. You know, my Hawaii experiences have not been as uh, as I've had horrible weather every time I've gone. Oh no! <clears throat> like torrential rains. You know, monsoon sort of rains one trip, and just it was kind of cold. Oh, I'm sorry. And windy and rainy the next trip. So I have not hit it very well for that. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, still, it's some fabulous places. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. And, and a lot of different hat. I mean, I was really surprised, especially on the Big Island, about how diverse it was. You know, for some, before I went to Hawaii, I just sort of assumed it was all a, it's like a tropical jungle. But you know, there on the Big Island, there's lots of big open plains, and there's like a cowboy culture there of of folks, and um, sort of dry forests on one side of the mountains and very wet forests on the other side. Um, it was really uh, in such a short 
area, a small area. It was um, really diverse. I had a blast. I've not been to the Big Island, so that's that's on my uh, hoped to go to places. We'll Put it on the list. It's it's great there, and there's a lot of room to sort of spread out. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to just uh, uh, wrap up with uh, some of the things I tend to ask most of my guests. Uh, what's on your Gosh, I really want to go birding there. Sort of places. Uh, I, you know, obviously you're young, and there's a lot of places you haven't been to. So I'm sure it's a long list. Uh, but if you could go a couple of places somewhere in the world to, to go birding, where, where would where would you head to? Yeah, man. Oh, man. You're right. That is. You know, there are no places that I don't want to go. I'll just say it like that. First, um, uh, I've birded in Australia, which was fantastic. Um, I would go back there in a heartbeat, but. Uh, but because I've been there already, it's probably not the very top of the list. Um, we just got back from a trip into Ecuador with some buddies, which was uh, just incredible. Um, and you know, of course there are a billion birds in the Amazon that I haven't seen. I'm really fascinated by places that don't necessarily come out with the, the biggest list at the end of the day, but have a really unique birds. Uh, I'm really fascinated by like Southern South America right now. Um, I think it's really interesting how it's sort of a, it, you know, because it's temperate, it sort of mirrors in a weird way, Maine, you know, in some right. ways, but it, but is completely different in other ways, sort of like, you know, either convergent evolution or, or just, um, you know, sort of similar, but slightly different adaptations. I'd love to go down there and see a lot of those birds you know, Southeast Asia, of course, um, uh, would be incredible. Japan, I would love to go to. Um, uh, I, you know, the thing about traveling for birds with me is that I, I really love to do it on my own or do it with, um, you know, with friends. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, in our trip to Ecuador, we we rented all our own stuff and drove all our own roads. We, we had um, guides with us when we were staying at lodges that had, had guides, but right. we were really doing it on my own. And and that to me is, is the most fun aspect of traveling. I know that's not, it's not right for everybody. Um, and it does limit a lot of places where, um, you know, you don't know the, you know, you don't speak the language or, you know, traveling is, is difficult uh, for, for other reasons, but the experience of sort of planning it all out on your, on your own finding, you know, it's up to you to find the birds. And when I travel, it's largely up to my friends who are much better birders than me to find the birds. But, (laughs) but, you know, it's, but, um, you know, the experience of having someone come and point the birds out to you is, is, um, is not as appealing to me. And so that is really always my focus. And, and I would, I would take a smaller list of sort of self found birds over a bigger list of birds that are, you know, sort of presented to me. Um, um, and so that means, you know, so Australia is great for that. You can cruise all the way around lots of places in the world are like that. Um, and those are probably higher on my list than some of the places I need a lot of assistance to. Yeah. I have to say I've only got, I don't think I went on a, a truly, a paid for a guided trip until the last gosh five or six years of my life yeah i it seemed almost like cheating to me uh, but i but i have to say that i've done some now and they're both great yeah uh, right. i mean the, the the idea of planning the logistics and all of that is so much fun to plan and get it all down uh, but there are some places for me birding the tropics is really really hard yeah 
little birds way up in the trees. They yep. all look sort of alike. Uh, and, you know, and having a day or two with a guide to kind of get you oriented and, and get you kind of on target and then go out on your own. It, it's not a bad strategy. Either. No doubt. No doubt. And I'm not trying to knock anything. And I know all those, the birding tour companies do such a great job and get you to a lot of places that I hear you. are way too difficult to get on your own. But for me, it's, it's, you know, finding the birds is, is, is not secondary, but is just part of the overall adventure, um, sure. which is, you know, what really sort of drives me. Yeah. I also like to give my guests a chance to have a shout out for something. Is there a cause or uh, a, uh, you know, so- something you want to give a shout out to, to, to promote? Um, yeah. I mean, so many things. Um, vote. Please, I'm not sure when this episode's coming out, but God, if you're listening to this and you're not going to vote, I can't imagine who you are, but go vote. That's, you know, first and foremost. You know, Maine Audubon uh, is a great organization. We do great stuff. If you're not a member, um, please consider um, coming over and joining. Um, We have all kinds of things to offer you with with information about birding in Maine or, you know, work to protect species here. So check us out, maineaudubon.org. And just uh, just have fun. The American Birding Association does a great job for birders specifically. I I work with a group in in the Mississippi Delta called Delta Windbirds, um, which is a really incredible group. You know, there's not a lot of nonprofit environmentalism in uh, in North Mississippi, I'll say. This organization works with catfish farmers and other types of farmers to preserve migratory bird habitat in the Delta. Um, there's tons of birds that go through the Delta. So um, Delta wind birds um, works to make sure that shorebirds have places to, to rest as they go through a really sort of innovative organization. So check them out. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a lot. Very cool. Uh, and what, just last thing, how can people reach out to you if they want to get a hold of you, Nick? Is, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Sure. Probably find me on Twitter uh, at uh, the bird at the birdist. I'm also the birdist at gmail.com if you want to reach out or just, I don't know, Google me and find some way. Yeah. Not too hard. You're pretty. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll stop short of giving my phone number, but other than that. Out there for people to find. Yeah. Nick, Nick, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. I'm hoping that next time I come to Maine, I can give you a shout. Maybe we can get out birding somewhere. Please do. I would love to. Uh, thanks for having me. Ed. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks again, Nick. Bye-bye. See you later. Well, that wraps up the Burbitter Podcast, episode number 78 with Nick Lund. Thank you for listening. What fun memories for me talking with Nick brought back. I love getting birding whenever I go back to Maine, and in recent years have really had a chance to get out a little bit more. I love the Bitterford Pool area. Got my life purple sandpiper there one winter when I went back to visit my dad and have had some other really cool birds there. Long-tailed duck, common eider, Wilson storm petrel, northern uh, northern gannet, uh, great cormorant. It's a great place to go birding, and there's really good uh, passerine habitat uh, on the East Point area that he talked about, too. I love going to Scarborough Marsh. One of my favorite things there was having singing uh, sharp-tailed and Nelson sparrows at the same time, you know, very close to each other. Really cool. That was super fun. Uh, and I can't wait to go to some of the other places he mentioned. We struggled a little bit to come up with the name of a place. It's called the Bangor City Forest. I'm pretty sure the informal birder's name for it is the Orno Bog, but it now goes by the Bangor City Forest if you're looking for it on an eBird hotspot. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day.